Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stuff. Good day and welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast again. Again, it's another week and we've got another interview. And this time it's Mark from Wave Prism. Now we've we've dealt with all the major wave tech uh, providers, you know, Wave Garden and, and well, except for Kelly Slater Wave Company, we haven't got them on board yet and we're trying to get them. But um, as Brian and I mentioned last week, there also are um, a bunch of other people who are developing waves and, and wave technologies and, and generally... These are scientists and very highly educated people who are doing wave models in their backyards. Um, and you can see that's kind of how Aaron from Surflex started out, you know, just doing all these models and everything. And then it built onto this massive business. And obviously he's right up there with the funding and multi-million dollars and stuff. So, um, but it's really interesting to see what's going on, what's bubbling under in the background in the wave pool industry. So we get to chat to Mark from Wave Prism and I just want to warn you from, from get a heads up. It's a long conversation and he does get really technical at parts, but he tells the most amazing stories in other parts and he's got a, a lovely way of talking. So I urge you to listen to this and you know what? If you just break it up into three chunks or something and then whatever, that's fine. No problem. But it's a, it's a great listen and it's filled with some fascinating information that you may have otherwise missed in your wave pool research. All right. And here is Mark from Wave Prism. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the Waypool Mag podcast. It's great to have you. Where are you at the moment? Right now, I'm in a small town called Bally, North Carolina. I'm east of Raleigh in eastern Carolina, and I'm surrounded by forests, cotton and tobacco, and soybeans for the most part. It's not really your surf mecca, but <laughs> that's where I am. No, <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, I've been to Charlotte, North Carolina a long time ago. Didn't I didn't see any there. waves down there. I lived there. I had an office in Charlotte. No, it's a, it's a cool city. It really is. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but let's go. Yeah, let's go way back. Um, so tell us about the time that, that you first paddled out on a wave. Well, it goes back pretty far. We're talking 1960s. I was born in Philadelphia. Okay. And to give you an idea of you know how I grew up, you've seen the Rocky movies, right? Yeah, Rocky, Rocky one, two, three, one, Rocky five. two. Okay, you know those homes that he was living in. He had first like uh, a small, dirty old apartment. Then he moved into like we used to call them row homes, and it's on a city street. And there's just one after another after another. There's a brick stairway going up and a wrought iron stairway. Well, I grew up in one of those, and there were eight of us in there. It's about eleven hundred square feet, and it was an upbringing. Let me tell you. But um, wow. In 1962, getting out to the coastal side of things, um, on the New Jersey coast, there was a massive storm. It was called the 1962 storm. And uh, where we ended up was on Long Beach Island. And there were sections of it that got completely wiped out by the storm. So summer in 1963, um, my parents rented a house down there, and we had the whole family down at the beach. They decided to take a ride up to Harvey Cedars. And that's where all the devastation was. There were sections like where there was just no houses left at all. They got pushed from the beach side all the way into the bay. Now, that section of the island is only about 100 yards, maybe 150 yards wide. So everything ended up into the bay and it was completely cleared out. It was just a sandbar. So they go up there to look at, look at, look around and they came across this guy. He was a builder and he was anxious to get his uh, business going. And him and a partner, they also even started a bank. So they were looking for warm bodies and that started talking to my parents and my parents said, look, you don't understand. You know where we come from? We got eight kids. We're living in an 1100 square foot house. We can't buy a beach house. And he said, don't worry about it. He says, all I need is your signature. I'll build you a house that you can rent out in the summertime. It'll pay the mortgage. And after 30 years, you're going to own a beach house, right? It sounds like today, doesn't it? So yeah. they did it. They did it. They borrowed just a little bit of cash for the down payment. And next thing you know, they had a beach house. And what we could do is any of the weeks that didn't rent, we could go down there and fill it in. And then we were always there in the shoulder seasons and in the wintertime. And uh, the beach environment there was, it was very, it's rough, you know, because very stormy. It's, the air is very salty. So we were always doing maintenance on the house. And that had us down there in the spring and summer all the time. Now, in that 60s period, that was that longboard era. And there were a couple of guys just a few blocks over 
they had moved out to California and adopted the whole California lifestyle. They came back with long hair. They were hippies. Um, they had the whole hippie lingo down and they were surfers. And I was fascinated with it. My oldest brother picked it up. He was four years older than me. He picked up like an 11 foot surfboard. He started surfing with them. Um, my first conversation with all of them, he had me stand there on the beach. We got up in the morning and we were up there checking out waves and Gordon and Dennis had come along and they were talking this hippie lingo. I hardly knew what anybody was saying. Then one of them fires up a joint. It was just like first thing in the morning. <laughs> it was the first time I had ever smelled pot. And I just, I loved it. There was a, um, uh, Gordon had a gun. He had surfed at pipeline the previous winter and, uh, his board was there on a, a wooden uh, rack underneath somebody's house. And I was standing there holding that thing. It had a big ding right in the deck. And the story was that he had taken off on this big pipeline wave and uh, he got pitched. And then when he came down, his knee went right through the deck of the board. Fascinated. This thing was so slick. It was a gun. It had the narrowest pintail, this long fin. And I went, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, man. And um, I, 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 that was my first experience with surfing right there. Oh, fantastic. That's a brilliant story. That's, that's really cool. So what is it like? I mean, obviously, you said that was in the 60s with longboards. Uh, what is it like moving to twins and thrusters back in the day? My first surfboard was a uh, 7.2 single fin. And that was considered a shortboard at the time. So I really learned how to surf on that other than ride my brother's big board. Uh, and that's when I really started putting some time into it. Um, and then, you know, we were getting all of our news just from the surf magazine, surfer magazine, surfing magazine. And Mark Richards was kicking ass. Um, and you could just see something was changing. The Australians, for the most part, were pushing the single fins really hard. Um, but then when this guy came along and he just opened it up with a twin fin, I just as soon as it came into the surf shop, I bought one and I hit the water on that. And that was when surfing was transitioning from that seventies phase from the chill surfer, get high, hang out and just enjoy nature kind of thing to the athleticism of surfing. And that was kind of a contrast at the time. You really weren't supposed to be like a top athlete kind of guy, but these guys were bringing on like a more powerful surfing um, it went from a quick phase from the twin fin, uh, Simon Anderson came out with that thruster. I, I bought one of those right away. Cause I knew, you know, from the twin fin, I love pushing that thing around, but there was kind of a pivot aspect to it. You know, if you pushed it really hard, um, you had to get some rail into it to get extra bite. Otherwise you had to be careful cause you could pivot a little too much. It was real great for tight radius turns and everything, but I had picked up the first thruster I could find. I didn't want to waste any time cause I knew where all this was going. I took off on like a head high wave, right? I dropped it on it was steep too. You ever see these videos of the New Jersey waves like in the wintertime? Yeah, Have sure. Have you watched any I of these barrels? The all stuff the time. is steep, right? It's hollow. The stuff spits, right? Well, I took off on a wave. It's kind of similar. And as soon as I dropped in, you know, I stuck the drop and I was just leaning into the turn and it, you could feel it in a nanosecond. The, the fins just laid in. And I just went off center, laid into the centrifugal force. And in the turn, looked back when I watched the trail behind me and I started heading like down line and back up the face. I just went, whoa, this is it, man. This <laughs> is the way to go. And I fell in love. I fell in love, man. Oh, man. That's amazing. That's that's awesome. Because I, I remember those those days of the because my first board was a lightning bolt twin fin as well. And I remember like, you know, um pivoting out and, and cavitating and and uh and then getting hold of a thruster a bit later and, and yeah, feeling the difference. But um yeah, amazing. So <laughs> so obviously surfing um didn't become your career. What you you went on to do some some heavy education. What what did you do education wise? Yeah, I kinda went round about. Um uh, there was one point where I hooked up with the chick and we actually moved to New York city for, uh, oh, about a year or so. And, uh, um, you know, I killed some time doing that. Uh, I was doing the city thing and, uh, um, stepped away from surfing for a bit. And then when that relationship ran its course, you know, I packed my things and I just headed back to the beach again. And then it was from there, um, 
you know, I realized that, you know, it's getting late in the day. If I'm ever going to get a college education, I have to do it. I have to do it before I'm 30. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So as things progressed, you know, just working jobs, you know, I, I got to be 27 years old. And my time's running out. I got to do it. So I was working at uh, a casino in Atlantic City. And there was a college just outside of the town there, Pomona uh, in Pomona, Stockton College. So I enrolled there. I was working night at the casino. Um and going to school during the day. And of course, I was living at the beach so I could, I could get my surfing in when I could. And I completed a four-year program in two years. I went to school uh, fall semester, spring semester, all summer long. I took night courses. And then in between during the Christmas holidays, I could even take an extra course there. And as I, I had to talk with the school administrators and everything to try to overload as much as I could. They were trying to talk me out of it. They were saying, well, you're going to miss the college experience if you try to cram too much, right? But I did it. I yeah. did it. I got straight A's through the whole thing. I got my degree, and I wow. breathed a big sigh of relief. And I was just happy. It was a personal achievement that I just had to get behind me. I had to get it under my belt. Oh, you must have felt super proud after doing that. Um, but what line yeah, well, was more in like, I, you know, um, that I could fit in, you know, I just didn't want to feel like that guy without a college degree. And I also wanted to, um, I didn't want to have limitations. You know, of course you want to be able to move up, you know, back then it was still the day of, you know, you wanted to move up. If you had a job, you want to move up, uh, management wise. Right. Um, now, you know, the focus, you want to be independent more than anything else. But back then, um, you know, you also had to look at, you know, what are your corporate uh, possibilities. And uh, there is no way I was going to do it without a college degree. So I was happy that I had got that behind me. Now, from that, um, there was um, just through a contact, there was a company that moved from New Jersey down to Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was um, a company that specialized in uh, weighing um, and, and metering of bulk solids into a process. And, and that all had to do with a, um, a highly accurate metering of multiple ingredients into a process, such as if it was plastics extrusion or rubber compounding or something like that. It requires um, a range of materials, mostly powders, and you have to get them to behave. They're going to behave like a solid. They're not going to want to move, but you have to get them into motion like a liquid. And then... Um, from their scientific aspect of it, they wanted, oh, first three sigma accuracy, then all the way up to six sigma, which is virtual perfection. So that's what we, we were focused on was, was weighing either by batches to uh, produce a batch of product or what was really becoming uh, more and more common was continuously um, coming with product into a factory, into a plant running it through and then getting it to these accurate metering devices. And that we would meter things, say, into an extruder. And it would just be a continuous flow of product through an extruder, and then product would come out the other end. Through that, it could go to any other process. It could become a foreign product, or it could just be packaged and shipped from there. So that was my start with uh, the bulk materials handling aspect, really specializing in the weighing and then learning um, to become an expert in the flow properties of all these different chemicals and, and products. Um, and it could even branch off into the food business. We did a lot of food applications where we were handling flour, sugar, cornmeal, cocoa powder. But I um, guess, I mean, I guess you must have been thinking, well, how could this relate to water? And, um, and what if I started doing something with water, right? Well, you know, once you're a surfer, once you love the ocean, you can't ever stop thinking along those lines. So we're working with entire silos, like 70 foot tall silos of, of product, um, delivering that into a pneumatic conveying system. Now behind a pneumatic conveying system are these big blowers. Well, what's powering a uh, pneumatic wave machine? the same exact big blowers, right? There's butterfly valves opening, inlet valves and outlet valves, there's suction, there's pressure, right? So we're really doing the same thing, but with powders. And the masses of product we're removing are huge. You know, we're talking hundreds of tons per hour. So um, there is a fluid aspect to it. The terms we would use were, um, there was a solids flow, mass flow, fluid flow, and then there's even a flooding condition where you can lose control of an entire silo of material. And that thing, if it gives, look out, because the whole thing just empties itself out. I was at a, um, a plant in uh, Jackson, Tennessee. It was a Kellogg's plant. They were making cereal. And 
underneath the silo is about 70 feet tall, maybe 12, 15 feet in diameter. There's a big bin activator on it. Between the activator and the cylinder of the silo, there's maybe a 12 inch tall neoprene uh, band that goes around it. And it's held on with these huge band clamps. Well, sometime, you know, and nobody was in the room, fortunately, that the band clamp gave way, the, the neoprene came off and the entire silo emptied itself out into the entire process area. And it just flooded. It comes out like white water and it fills a room up 12 foot deep with flour. It's dangerous condition. You can drown in it. And that's actually what happens. You drown in it. You suffocate, but you drown. You try to swim your way because <laughs> people have died that way. And then the other aspect of that business is dust explosion. Because when you have uh, a condition inside a silo, if you're not venting things properly, a lot of people don't know that any kind of dust, especially grains, you ever hear of a grain explosion? Silos will just blow up. If there's a spark, sometimes there's even a spontaneous combustion and the things will blow and it's like a bomb. It's like those nitrogen bombs. Um, you know, the fertilizer bombs when they blow up. So you have to be really careful of that. Um, when you're working with all of your motors and electrics, um, you have to meet um, an explosion classification. The most common that we had to work with all the time was the, the dust explosion classification. And then a little less common was the, the vapors hazards. So you had to have motors that were specialized for that because you didn't want to spark any, anything. Um, once it worked in my favor, I just installed a whole bunch of equipment, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment. It was only operating a couple of months and something blew up. Now, my equipment wasn't the source of it, but it, it destroyed my equipment. Fortunately, um, within the same year, I got to resell everything all over again. So I got the commission on everything a second time. So I thought, well, that's not too bad. And nobody blamed me for it. So it was okay. <laughs> but um, obviously, that work with um, you know with, with all those fluids and, and solids led you, must have led you to start tinkering with with artificial wave machines and like what if what if we could make a wave? How did you get the idea to start with wave machines that could be done? Did you see something else, or did you just figure it out yourself? Well, I was tasked with um, an application where um, companies were moving to installing these flexible silos. It's a woven polypropylene material. It's kind of like a fabric, but it's woven so tight, it doesn't leak or anything, um, but it's flexible. Um, there were entire like big silos. There were intermediate like storage bins. And then um, there are these cubes. They could be like three feet by four feet cubes. You could fill those with say blended material, um, put them on a a pallet and a fork truck, move it to storage, and then discharge those to another part of the process, or put them on um, trucks, trains, and ship those to another facility that would then make an end product out of that. So the task was, um, can you get the product to flow out of these containers um, reliably? Because oftentimes the material would form either a brick in there and you couldn't get it out, Oftentimes, what would happen if you're trying to ship product, you know, with like a bag of potato chips, when you open it up, it's only half full, right? But um, what happens when they fill that at the, at, the, at the plant, it's actually a full bag, and then the air settles out, and the chips settle down, and you end up with half a bag. Well, when that happens with these uh, super sacks, when you ship them, you can't stack them so much. If you stack them, they start to fall over. So they would ship them to single layer at, at, at a certain cost per mile. And I had to come up with a way to fill those densely so you could stack them, reduce that shipping cost. And then on the other side, when you were filling these containers, flexible containers, flexible silos, there's things that happen that you have to, and I hope I don't go too far off track here, um, but this was my field. Um, I, I figured out a way where you could, when you were filling up an empty container, it's filled with air, all right? So you could push mm -hmm. the bottom of the container all the way up to the top up to where the inlet is. And then from there, start filling. It would have evacuated all the air out. And then you could densely fill without air getting entrained with the material. Lower that, uh, okay. the bottom all the way down, and you would have a dense filled container. All right. And that would help in a couple of things. One is you didn't have to lose precious product to dust collection. Uh, the other is you would have a dense fill in your silo or container. And the other is if you were making blended material, what if these guys would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of research on getting the perfect blend, if you would transfer it in, in an intermediate part of your process, it would unblend just from the free fall, right? Mm -hmm. So it was able mm -hmm. to keep blended product intact. And that was like a big development. And then if you were, if you had these portable containers that would move from one side to the other, you could sit this on a discharge station and 
everybody knows that when you try to get ketchup out of a bottle, you take the lid off and nothing happens. You have to shake it up and down. You have to hit the uh, bottle with the heel of your hand and get the, the product to come out. So the discharge station actually does that. And I have the videos out there for Siloflex. There's a, there's a short video for the, the filling aspect. And it shows this. Um, um, I think it's beautiful to watch. It, it, it pushes how it, how it just inverts a container and then as it fills, it, it reverts back to its original shape. And then the container is on a discharge station. And it's it's lifting up and dropping, lifting up and dropping. And that gets the product from a powder form or a more dense form to loosen up and then flow freely into a process. And that was just really key to all the all the processors. You know, they want reliable flow. Anything that stops flowing, it stops production. They don't want bottlenecks. And then from there where that weighing and metering aspect came in from the start of my business was accurately getting this stuff into a process to produce perfect product all day long, every day, 365 days a year. So, okay, with the Siloflex, it had a, a motion and what it did was it displaced a large volume that was displacing air on the filling aspect. Mm. And I started mapping it out and I went, you know, this would be great if I could displace water. This would be the coolest thing. This is before I knew anything about wave machines, or I didn't know anybody else was even looking at this stuff. I didn't know that. Because this is quite a long time ago, right? Yeah, this goes back. You know, this goes back. Yeah. Um, well, shoot, I was working, working all through the 90s on all this stuff and into the 2000s. And, uh, um, you know, you always have your mind on, on the ocean wanting to get back someday. Uh, when I was out there on the road, I always thought, oh, how great if there was a... Um, not a surf park, but one of these wave machine places where at least you could body surf. If mm. that would help my fix, right? If I was traveling in the middle of Georgia, I was in these clay mines and I was far from everything. I, I, I stood by the Mississippi river and I would, you know, you look at the trees, you smell the wind and you go, I'll bet you it's offshore at Hatteras, right? You can't stop. Thinking, <laughs> <right? laughs> you go mad out there. And, and, before the whole surf park idea ever came up, I just thought how nice it would be to be able to body surf a wave. Now, when my son came along, we would go to the water parks and, um, and it was just frustrating because you'd have hundreds and hundreds of people lined up. One wave comes out every 15 minutes from those hydraulic systems. You know, they fill big tanks with water and then open a gate and the water comes mm -hmm. running out. Well, hundreds and hundreds of people line up. And you can't body surf. If you do, you're going to run into them. Plus, the wave is so fat, it's really hard to maintain your planing. But if you do, you're going to run into people and you're going to hurt them. It's very frustrating. So, I mean, I was thinking, well, how nice this would be if there really was a place where at the end of my day, I could catch a wave. And um, also what was happening was the um, globalization process was just wreaking havoc on the entire manufacturing, manufacturing industry. There were plants closing down left and right. There were so many times where I'd be out there going, I think I'll stop by and I'll visit an old friend. And I'd pull up to the parking lot and there's grass and weeds growing through the cracks of the parking lot. The gate's hanging on the hinges. The glass is broken on the guardhouse. Pigeons are nesting in all the nooks and crannies of the building. And I go, where is everybody? And that started happening every place. And uh, I had to start looking at- And that was uh, all shifting well, to China, I guess. Huh? Everything. Everything was going straight to China and it started yeah. happening faster and faster. It was very eerie to be out there and just look and wonder, where is everybody? What are they doing? Um, mm. And you could just tell that, you know, if you were involved in the manufacturing business, you were going to have to find other things to do. Now, mm. uh, you know, everybody, I guess, was supposed to have learned how to write code and make websites and stuff like that. Um, I was thinking about, well, the Siloflex thing, I could turn it into a device that could displace water. And there was kind of a triangular um, look to it. When I was sketching everything out, the thing would be like V-shaped. And if you moved it halfway, that formation was like a triangle. And I was thinking energy in, beautiful waves out. It's like a prism, you know? So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to call it the wave prism. But actually that was, I had to come up with an email account and I had to think of a name real quick. And I kind of forced me to pick something. So I went, there it is, wave prism. It's going to be called the wave prism. So um, then from there, I actually, I just started sketching everything out um, and I laid everything out and then I figured out materials and I started working with fiberglass manufacturers and started ordering um, square fiberglass tube, um, uh, actuators, everything I needed. 
And I went to work and I became expert in working with fiberglass and I started constructing um, really a pretty good size scale of the wave prism diagonal displacement device. And that's what's really unique about it. That, you know, when you push a wall forward, it's linear, right? You'll have like a hydraulic actuator behind it and you really just push it forward, okay? The silo, the, the, the wave prism starts from, let's say the upper left-hand corner and goes diagonally down to the lower right-hand corner and it displaces it that way, which by itself is pretty cool, but it's not a big deal. But when you put two of them together, put one on top of the mm -hmm. other, one is displacing from an upper corner. The other one is displacing from a lower corner. When the two interact, they actually become one wave machine. It creates a high pressure zone right between them. And it's very powerful, very powerful looking. And then the beauty starts. If and you, you got some great videos view, that actually illustrate that. Sorry, Mark, there's you got some great videos that illustrate that process, right? And we can probably the, just um, link to that in the podcast. I have a few of those videos out there. Um, there's the, the first one just shows one uh, module actuating. The sec There's one that compares the, I, I hope Wave Garden isn't too upset that I did that, but it was a long time ago. I think they forgave me. I compared the Wave Prism to the, the um, Wave Garden uh, Cove design, right? And um, in that one, I have two units, one on top of the other, and you can see that interaction, interaction. And then I actually pulled the third one. It has three modules. And that's where you get this kaleidoscope action where each one is, is pushing from a far corner all towards one center point. All three form one wave machine. And to look at it, it looks just like a kaleidoscope where it opens and closes just like a kaleidoscope has, you know, squares and diamonds and they interact with one another. It moves like that and it forms one powerful wave machine. And the real magic of it is, and that was a big discovery for me, was, and I'll come back to the reasoning for this, is that when you stack, let's just say using round numbers, a 10-foot cube and then another 10-foot cube, you're getting into 20 feet deep of water. That's a lot of water. It's very deep. The pressure's high. There's a lot of mass, a lot of weight. And then you have a third cube sitting right in front of the bottom one. What happens is when you displace the two lower ones, actually actuate upwards, it creates a floor up at the 10-foot level. So instead of with any of the present wave machines, you're displacing your full, let's say a 10 foot cube, it's a thousand cubic feet of water into 10 feet deep of water. It displaces three times the amount, 3000 cubic feet of water into 10 feet water depth. That's a huge breakthrough. It's a tremendous And that's how you can get the phenomenal wave heights out of the system because well, that, that's, that, that's what you're saying, right? It's going it's to yeah, be much, well, what much it does, better because most of the people out there are saying, that in order to get big waves, you've got to produce, you've got to move so many, so much amount of water and you've got to have so much energy to, to create that. But your system is kind of short circuiting that whole approach, right? Yeah, because here's what happens. Okay, go back to a, a wall. If a wall is in 10 feet deep of water and it's pushing 10 feet forward, that's as far as it can push forward because if it goes any further, you don't want your swell to turn into white water. That's wasted energy, right? So if you're 10 feet deep, you're going to be able to push 10 feet forward. The water is going to snowplow up the front of it It'll rise up. So your wall has to stand about 50, 60 feet uh, percent taller than the water depth, right? So you push forward, the water snow plows up, and you got 10 feet deep of water in front of you. You have to influence not just the water you're displacing from the area that you're moving in, but another cube, of, an invisible cube of water in front of that, okay? So you're really influencing not 1,000 cubic feet of water. You're in influencing 2,000 cubic feet of water, all right? And that's where a lot of energy comes in and trying to do that. You're trying to make a wave. So if you wanted to double that wave height, it just so happens that if you're in 10 feet deep of water, the resulting wave is going to be about five feet. It's going to be one half the water depth. All right. So if you wanted to double that, just simple math, you're going to have to go down to 20 feet deep. You're going to have to push wall 20 feet forward. That's 4,000 cubic feet of water. It's 20 times 20 is 400 times 10 feet across. You're at 4,000 cubic feet. Then sitting in front of you is another 4,000 cubic feet. You now have to influence 8,000 cubic feet of water, okay? So you went from wanting to initially just push 1,000 cubic feet of water to make a five-foot wave. To you're up to 8,000 cubic feet, and you just want to double it, all right? So there's this exponential energy increase, and that's just crushing to us. If you want to get any bigger than what's happening right now, the, the energy uh, equation is just too punishing. Is there a way ar around it? Are are you bullshitting? Are you are you trying to say you're defying physics to do it any differently? And what I did with those multiple cubes in 
one module space. You know, the the way prism design is is a multi-module one. So if you have 20 feet across, it's the same as if you have 20 pneumatic um, air caissons lined up. Um, the 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 wave garden has many wall panels all joined together by hinges, but they're doing the same thing, right? Um, but you have to do the same formula. You have to increase water depth and you have to push your wall further. If you're displacing air, you have to go deeper and you have to displace twice as much air, eight times as much air to get to double the wave. So what I, what it, it became clear and you can see in that one video, I'm sorry I had to pull it because it kind of reveals too much. You have it, you can see it. Um, I may put it out there again after this, we'll see. Um, was how do you displace two times and three times as much water, but without having to go down to that double water depth and then influence that huge mass of water is in front of your wave machine. Okay. And it revealed itself that I could displace three times as much water, ultimately still in 10 feet water depth that puts you closer to the reef where your wave is going to break. Your travel distance is much shorter because if you're coming out of 20 feet deep of water, you have to go up a slope. It's going to be long. Did you ever notice with the, um, if you ever see a drone's eye view, of some of those um, water park wave pools, the when they when they drop the water into the pool, the swell travels a real long distance, a lot of wasted space, and then the wave hits the reef area and then it breaks. Right, a real advantage is to be able to shorten that distance. Everybody wants to do that. I think American Wave Machines did a good job of it because the wave breaks very close to the wall. He's got this kind of a almost sweeps along the front of the wall kind of way. And so that's what you want to do. You want to shorten that distance. It makes your wave pool smaller. You don't want to waste all of that real estate. But everything that you're displacing, if you can get it to equate to wave height, more than just wave length and and wasted energy travel and waiting to get to the reef, you're, you're getting ahead of the game. And that's what that design had revealed. Now, I might have made some big claims and everything in the video and everything, but it was pointing in the right direction. Can I just ask you a quick question? Because um, I mean, that looks awesome on paper and I've seen the video as well and it looks really exciting. And, I, and I'm like, but how do you um, get to proving that in reality to all the people who say, nah, it'll never happen? Because I mean, that's the trick, isn't it? You have to build models um, and and see for yourself, you know, which is what I've done. Um, and I've built so many, what, yeah, many where models. where are you at with the models? I've, well, I've built pneumatic models, um, the wall piston, pushing walls. Um, I've done water tank models and I've done the, the wave prism models and it, it demonstrates itself out. It proves itself out. I just haven't been willing at this point to just put it out there in public. Okay. Now, and also so, because um, you created, you know, this is only, this is only, a wave. and it's all part of a learning process. You know, I'm not saying like I'll, I'll get contacted oftentimes, like where are you at? You know, people want to build, there's so much enthusiasm from people who want to build surf parks right now. And they want to know where I'm at. You know, is this an alternative that they can build? And it's like, no, this is a, it's an R and E it's research and experimentation. Um, a couple of words I don't want to use is R and D development. Development is, you know, where I'm at now moving into is developing the actual surf park, the wave pool. My focus has just been on studying the dynamics of generating swells and turning them into waves. Um, I'm sorry. I was just saying, what's your intention um, with Wave Prism from a business perspective? Then, are you are you looking to get funded and, and move it into um, a, a Wave Tech provider, or are you looking to sell the tech to to other Wave Tech providers? Or, or what are you thinking at the moment? Those things are up to for discussion with whoever you know. I end up talking to you know if you know I'm not one of those guys who knows the billionaire surfers who have a has a wife who is very enthusiastic about surfing. That would be wonderful. Um, you know, where I am, you know, the surfers I've <laughs> known too. are stone broke. You know, you're lucky if you could get a $50 donation from them. Um, so um, I'd like to fo follow, I think, Aaron Trevis's path. Um, you know, he's the guy from Surf Lakes. And I had read that he did uh, um, a fundraiser through one of those group platforms. I think this is an Indiegogo or something like that. And he raised his first money to build a small model just to kind of prove out his idea. Then by proving out that idea, he was able to do another round and build a more like medium sized model. And then from that, he was able to find the large pool of funding that was necessary to build that huge, beautiful facility that they built in uh, Yapon. So I think that uh, wave prism has to follow a path like that. So um, now talking about the tech and then getting to there, okay, you've seen the 
the, the wave present design. Am I married to that? No, no, because my studies then went from that to look into the wave pool itself. What happens after you make a wave? Well, there's this energy and this mass and it goes taken off through a pool. If you look at a drone's eye view, 50% of a wave pool size has dissipated all of that energy. And then you have to start over again. You have to wind the thing back up again and then push out another wave. And this is your cycle that you do all day long. And this is part of the, you know, you're on that hamster wheel of, you know, consuming a lot of energy, pushing out a wave, dissipating the energy. And then after so many waves, almost everybody has to shut down, allow a calming period, and then go back to generating waves again because you create a whirlpool effect. You know, it's contained. It's not like the ocean, you know, I think the closest thing I ever saw to it was in New Jersey. We had jetties. They were about every thousand feet apart. And if a swell was coming straight on, it would... Um, the jetties would kind of be like your walls, pretty far apart, but the wave would come in, break on the sandbar, and then it would have to find channels to get back out. And you would have a rip that would just suck right out. If it came through your break, there wasn't much you could do except sit there and wait for the rip to settle out or, you know, drift from north to south. So you can wait for your next set of waves to come in a ride. And that's kind of what happens in a wave pool. So uh, there's something that's completely undiscovered, you know, what do you do with that energy? What do you do with that mass? And then it gets worse. If you're going to displace two times and three times as much mass, but you don't really want to increase the size of the wave pool, what are you going to do with all of that energy? You're going to have a mess on your hands. And there's the next level that wave prism is now at. Um, I've built a model to prove out and, and, and just prove to myself, hey, this works. This works. And oh, this is really where the energy savings come in. This is now where I can um, brag a bit and I can boast um, that, okay, if you're going to make a wave at today's size, everybody knows what a wave pool wave looks like now. You know, it looks about this big and it kind of breaks like that, you know, depending on who's making it. So there's, you know, it's consuming a lot of energy. If you go much higher, it's going to be an ex exponential increase. But what if now you can back down? What if you can save, do it for 25% less energy? What if you can get it down to 30%, maybe even 50% less energy? What that does, it answers to that whole chorus of people out there that are screaming the word sustainability, right? You yeah. have to answer well, to Let's them. talk about energy quickly. I mean, if you look at all the competitors around in the market right now, how much energy are they um, requiring? Per I don't know. They're not going to tell me. Um. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to compare yours versus theirs if you don't know how much theirs are. Well, it's all pretty much the same. Um, if you're displacing, say, 1,000 cubic feet into 10 feet deep of water, you know, it's all going to be the same. And it doesn't matter how you do it. You know, whether you're pushing air into the water or um, you're pushing a wall or you're dropping a, a stored amount of volume of water downward into the pool. Um, the only difference is, is that if you're like a Kelly Slater Wave Company or um, the, the Wave Garden original lagoon design, when you're pulling a, uh, a foil through the water, that's more analog, right? That's like an old... Yeah. Um, analog digital, not an old analog uh, stereo tuner where you have to spin the wheel, you spin the dial and to get from uh, radio station 55 all the way up to 107.9, you got to spin that all the way thing. So once you start that, it's going to run from start to finish. Everybody else is digital. You can pulse these things in any sequence that you want. Now, one of my most influential guys, and nobody really, I don't think a whole lot of people know he was out there. His name is John's back, John Baxendale. And he had a wave machine that he called the Wave Master. Now, John had like five videos um, where he would describe um, how he was approaching the energy issue. And I like the way he started his videos. He would say, hello, I'm John Baxendale, and I am a practicing physicist. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's a physicist. Okay. All right. This guy knows what he's talking about. But he did these really great videos. And what he did was he was talking about how if you have, say, 20 modules all lined up at the same time, and you're firing them off in sequence – at some point, they're going to overlap, and they're all going to be asking for peak electricity demand at the same time, right? So mm -hmm. what he did was he reversed it. He made it so that you use all the energy backing it up when you're winding it up backwards, and it would create a, a, a standing vertical column of water behind the wall. So then when you're going forward, gravity and all of that massive water behind the wall would push the wall forward, and it was practically a free stroke. Right. So if you have module number one, two, three, four, five, all firing off in sequence, right, 
each one is only drawing a little bit of energy because you have gravity in this massive water pouring, uh, you know, putting the, the, the energy forth to make your swell. And then on the backstroke, then you could take your time and you could do your sequence in a way where you're not creating one peak demand of electricity. Okay. I like that. And he used this really unique um, uh, device to, to drive it. It's called a pentagraph. And, it, and what it is, is that's that thing you see on top of the trolley cars. It's kind of X-shaped like a, like a scissor lift. And it holds a, oh, yeah. uh, a rod up. It has a wheel at the end of the rod. And that wheel runs along the wire where it gets electricity. And that runs it down to the electric motor in your trolley car. And that pentagraph, what it does is it is it, it, it spring-loaded so it can collapse and expand, collapse and expand. And it always maintains contact with the wire. So we used that idea. And he had this cam arm that would drive it and push it back and forth. I thought it was the cleverest thing. And then he goes further into discussing the, the water depth versus wave height and the amount of energy it takes to, to make a wave that's bigger. And he, that was very influential of anything I've seen out there. And he was just really explicit. He didn't hold back. He, he was very educational. And I guess he was a teacher because he did a great job. Now, if I think there's a group in Ecuador that bought his um, technology and Brian might have done a uh, a little feature on that. So if anybody's looking back to who is that, where is this? I think those guys in Ecuador have it. Now I'd like to see what they do with it. What is his name? Because James cool. Baxen. John John Baxendal. He's from Cornwall. Baxendal. Baxendal. Yeah. <laughs> I like his British accent. Uh. My name is John Baxendal, and I am a practicing physicist. I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, but let's go back to, to Wave Prism. Um, so the model that you've created, where, where did you do that? Is that in your backyard? Um, uh, I have a, um, uh, a little separate building on my property, and there's a shop in there. And there I can uh, work and make all the noise I want. Um, I can run all my power tools. Nobody bothers me. And um, I experiment, experiment, experiment. I build these models, and I work them. I did this one. Um, I was trying to do this thing like yeah, I, was, I wanted to get this standing water column thing going and and drive it with a a wall that, to make the wave and i wanted to use gravity and all that stuff but i couldn't get the water all the way up to the top of my 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 compartment my chamber so i bored out a hole and i put a valve on it and i attached a, sh attached a shop vac to it and when i turned it on vacuum it just went and it sucked it right up and it filled the whole thing up then i had this lever I made it out of a like a six foot long fiberglass pole with a um, um, a pivot pin through the base, and this thing I could ram it forward and roll it, ram it back, right? So that was my um, hydraulic piston in a sense, right? And I could manually drive this wall piston back and forth, and I tried different ones. I made round pistons in a cylinder, just like a cylinder in a car engine. I made square ones, and I tried to see if I can make those not leak. And then I would just work the hell out of it, just make wave after wave after wave. And time after time, I'd work it until I'd blow out the seams in the wave pool and whoosh, all the water in the pool would just go out on the shop floor. Unfortunately, the and floor What size is, waves are you getting? Like, the floor, uh, well, you know, it's amazing. When you're doing models, it's, do you ever see any of these videos, these little, these test videos where they're trying to um, demonstrate a wave from a model? It's this little, tiny, little splash of a wave, and you have to do it in super slow motion because the, the braking action is so fast, you can't even tell what happens, right? And it just goes splash, splash, splash. And there's just stupid little waves, you know? It's just like, you know, it's, it's like making little splashes in a puddle. And but then you have to- you get some great scientific stuff from it. Well, you have to extrapolate from that. Fortunately, it does work out physics-wise that it is a linear relationship. What you do small scale- all you have to do is just um, increase everything uh, linearly and it will um, extrapolate to real life size. You know, fortunately, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, <laughs> well, let's hope it does. I mean, that's the well, idea. Well, no, it does because that's, that's what everybody there does. Are, well, sometimes and there's a. John, sometimes John the physicist. When you get a full scale replica. John the physicist said it's true. So I, I'm going with John. <laughs> John Baxendahl. Yeah, he cites this um, German, I think he was a German scientist or something like that. He cites him, you know, that, that, that he came up with this, uh, this, this theory. And, and, and so I know it's true. Because I, I know sometimes there are surprises when you, when you move to a full-scale model and then you know, some, not everything works as, as you initially thought or maybe you haven't worked stuff out. Well, that's going to happen. You know, I, I fell for Aaron because um, he was doing a full-size full test and I think somebody was spying on him that really wasn't invited there. And of course, something broke, right? 
And I fell for him because well, that can happen. You don't know until you get there and you try this stuff out. Because I've broken, I've destroyed wave pool after wave pool. And I just run to the back of the shop. There's these big sliding um, barn doors. I open them up and the water runs out on the grass and I get a big broom and just start at one end of the room to the other. And I just sweep all the water out. Right. But in real life, you know, if somebody's <laughs> there with a camera and a telephoto and, and, and they're watching you make your mistakes. You know, you're going to look if they, you know, especially if it's somebody who's a friend of a competitor who's, who's going to put something out there and pre- present it in a negative light, you're in trouble, you know? Wow. Um, and you can't hide this stuff. And see, his is sitting all out in the open. If you're, a lot of these things, everything's happening underwater. So if a mistake happens, the machine's just going to stop. You're going to know what happened. Whereas, you know, with theirs, it's sitting right there in the wide open and you can see. And um, But I want to just emphasize, I love that machine. I think it's the coolest damn thing. And oh, there are efficiencies in it. waves and stunning, stunning waves. Yeah. There's efficiencies in it. You know, when that, that dome drops, right, it's buoyant, just like a ship. You know, you can see the thing is hollowed out, right? And when it goes down into the water, it takes the force of gravity, a thing, I don't know how many hundreds of tons that weighs, right? So it drops down into the water and just like a beach ball, it comes up half of the way. Then they have to apply their steam energy to lift it up and crank it up the post until it gets, you know, to the proper height again. And then they drop it. That's all gravity. And, but they get an energy savings on that backstroke, that beach ball effect. You know, that's smart. And it's probably the best wave out there to date. I mean, I suppose you could compare it with Kelly Slater's wave, but it's, it's definitely, I think they did a recent test recently and they, they just really maxed it out and did some really great. Um, they're beautiful. Waves. They're beautiful. Really, really I would good. love to ride that wave. But they're two different animals. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the foil waves are a point break. Okay. That's a very angly wave. You know, you're coming in like at 45 degrees to the, to the shoreline. Um, and I, if you've ever been out surfing on a wave that comes in at that angle, it has to catch the right kind of a reef and it's all shoulder, you know, it's not going to close out on you. It's just going to keep going and going and going. Rincon is like that, um, you know, a point break and that, that Kelly Slater later wave machine really represents that kind of surfing. Um, the ones I would say surf lakes and most everybody else are beach break, reef break kind of waves where you're pushing a, um, a, a swell that's going to catch a specific reef at a certain angle. It's either going to catch it, split peak and go off in either direction, or you're going to angle it. So that it's going to come across the, the reef and break right or come across the reef and break left. So it's more reef break, beach break. Two very different animals. And that's what's nice. And this is what we need. I'm happy to see all these different designs coming out there. And I'm happy to see everybody experimenting in real life um, because we're all learning from it. And then we get to see something new coming on. Right? And we're waiting for the next one. Are we are we waiting for the next thing? Are we waiting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Because now we know. We know what everybody can do. And, and even if they don't have um, um, commercial facilities, their full-size facilities have already told us what we're doing. And you can see the limitations. You go, okay, a, a, a surf park wave is about this big, right? And then, what you, you, you know, can you, can you make it break in a way that you can do airs on it and do your performance maneuvers? Um, where we need to go next is do the same thing, but give the um, surf park operator a chance to have a better margin. Um, maybe reduce the cost for the surfers. Um, they're willing to pay a high price. It's amazing. Um, but you want to be able to give them a break and bring that down. Uh, and you want to answer to the sustainability aspect. Are we using less power, right, to begin with, so that it's easier to buy? If you want to do alternative means of energy, this stuff is expensive and it's a lot of capital expense. You know, the energy might seem like it costs free, but you're going to have to have another mortgage for all that capital expenditure. Um, yeah, more than that. Um, but like bearing all that in mind, what projects are you watching right now? Because there's a lot of projects just about coming out and it's exciting to see the wave pool space taking off because with every single project, it makes it a whole lot easier to fund the next project because it's just proving it. I think so. And um, I think the um, the desert area out there in California and Phoenix are proving that you can do more than one surf park in one town. That's cool. Now, uh, here's an idea. My son and I, yeah, at least. Well, to give you an example, my son and I, years ago, he was just a a, a little kid, you know, I said, let's go to Orlando, Florida. We're going to spend about three or four days down there. Each day we'll go to a different surf park. And we did. We got up early in the morning. We went to a a wave park, not a water park, just a water park, right? And we horsed around. We went on all the slides. And then ultimately we ended up at the, um, uh, the Typhoon Lagoon wave pool. 
and we rode that and we just had a blast. Well, the thing is, you could, there's all these different uh, water parks in close proximity to one another and they all survive. And each one feeds on the other. They have different personality, different characteristics. Now, with each of these different wave pools, if you have everything ranging from, say, a Kelly Slater foil wave, if you can afford to get it, right? Okay, so those guys are going to enjoy the hell out of that. Then you have, um, you know, the the American wave machines, the the Lockfeld one. Um, who else is building them? I think Surf swell spot that's the guy out of richmond he's got this neat little thing and actually the concept is more of a digital type of thing that uh surf lakes is doing but it's individual buoyant um like piano key shaped things they're half filled with water and with a hydraulic arm they go down into the pool and then the buoyancy part pushes it back up and it's it's it's, it's artistic to watch it because each one goes up and down and he can uh, program the sequence of the things. It'd be cool to see that. I think he's advertising that he can build a pool for less money. So that might be like more of a lower budget kind of a place. Um, and mm-hmm. what I would like to do is one, either, you know, provide the operator a means to make more money, improve his margins, or take that savings. And this, this would be the park where um, each one is going to feed on the other. If it's pushing out a wave that's 50 to 100% taller, right? If you can take off and get a really comfortable stand-up barrel, or if you're, you're going to drop in and really lay down your bottom turns and go up to the top, do a full arching centrifugal force top turn, you know, this, now we're talking, right? Now we're going like, okay, yeah. this is a good swell. Especially for the taller guys. We have to get there. Yeah, the bigger guys, the heavier guys. And out of all these wave pools is going to come a higher skill of surfer that wants the next place to go. They're going to get bored after a while, right? So you have to give them a bigger wave, a higher performance wave. That barrel where, you know, I mean, pro surfers look great when they're all scrunched up and they're just like perfectly slotted in this little tube. But I like to stretch my knees a little bit. Me too. I mean, I I love WaveGuard and WaveGuard is an amazing technology, but I've surfed their wave and I just felt it was like a little bit small for me. They they didn't have it on the max setting because I'm not a very good surfer, but um, I'd I'd like a a bigger bigger wave myself, but um, I'm sure it'll be coming. Yes. And I want to go the complete opposite direction too. Um, the, the, The one thing that, you know, when I was out traveling and I was hoping there was a wave I could body surf. And when I was going around with my son to different water parks and we were trying to find a wave that you could body surf and it's just impossible. Um, you know, in the sport of baseball, soccer, they especially baseball. I'm out here in the East, the South, the, the Southeast baseball is big. All right. So in every town, there's a little community, little league field. The pitcher's mound is real close to the batter's, uh, the, the batter's plate, the the bases run, they're, they're, they're short, they're only half as long, the fence is in close, and they put the ball up on a tee, and they can have these cute little games of baseball, right? Then there's the, the it starts out with like um, Babe Ruth League, that's the little kids, that's like five, six, seven, then they go seven, eight, nine, that might be the Cal Ripken League, that's where the kids can actually pitch, the field gets bigger, um, their skills are getting better. Kids who weren't going to play the game are getting weeded out. Ones who have more capability are staying with it. And what's that? Tra- that's training them to, for the middle school. And then that the high school fields are big and they can be really beautiful. And that's where all the best players from each community come together and they perform, right? Then the big separation takes place is when they leave and a very small percentage of them go to play college ball. And I see that in surfing. If I had a job at the WSL, I would be thinking along these lines. I would yeah. be thinking the the Cal Ripken, Babe Ruth style, and I would have, you know, I don't know, you've probably seen city swimming pools where like hundreds and hundreds of kids all just like pack a pool, and you can't move. They stand around, they make a bunch of noise, and everybody pisses in the pool, and it's about all you can do. Some of them have like a little inflatable <laughs> thing to float on, yeah. but imagine, okay. Um, a very modestly sized pool that puts out a wave. Now, this takes us back to New Jersey and, and Cape Hatteras. With the jetties that we had, it would form a magnificent sandbar right in the middle. 
maybe a little to the left, a little to the right. And all summer long, even if a swell wasn't running, we didn't know it at the time, but oftentimes it would just be groundswell coming in. And then I found out more recently, a lot of this stuff could be coming down from um, the Atlantic coast of Africa. And you would never know the swells were traveling all the way north across the equator, making a bend with the, the Coriolis effect towards Bermuda and then hitting New Jersey and New York and uh, Cape Hatteras. It actually happens. Mm-hmm. And you would stand on the bar. The thing is, when these sandbars form between jetties, you can walk from ankle deep to shin deep, knee deep, thigh deep to waist deep water, maybe waist to chest. And then right after that, it drops off. So these swells come in kind of periodically. And if you get out there early in the morning, it's always glassy and catch these lovely body surfing waves. They're steep. New Jersey waves are always steep. Right. And if you have a, a, a small, it only has to be two to three feet, but if it has the right curve to the face, if it just wants to draw out enough, when you push off the bottom, you don't even have to swim for it. You push off, you throw your left arm out and just curve left, carve left, and you can get barreled. Oftentimes it'll close out and then you get slammed into the sand. My family used to go out there, my, my parents, uh, nieces and nephews. My parents were in their 70s. This was a ritual we would do. You get up in the morning, the first thing you do is walk up to the beach with a beach towel. Wouldn't even take a beach chair because we just go walk out onto the bar, body surf, get your fun, and then go back and have breakfast, right? I pictured that these, instead of city pools, a type of similar situation where kids are just body surfing. They go in a loop, you know, you ride your wave, you come around again, and at most you ride a bogey board but it's primarily dedicated to body surfing and just learning waves and getting familiar with moving water like that. You know, there's nothing more beautiful. And Absolutely. I mean, I used to do it myself as a kid. Oh, amazing. And you can take so much bigger waves as well. And the thing is, you know, I'd watch my 70-some-year-old mother catch a wave, right? She couldn't actually ride a wave. And then at that closeout section, she didn't know how to, like, like dive under the wave and come out the back. She would just go over and get slammed in the sand. And she'd come up, pulling up her, her one piece. She's got, like, sand's all coming out of the top. She's pulling the, <laughs> the, the elastic on the leg and water and sand's coming out. And she'd be laughing. And everybody was just laughing the whole time. And that's what, hmm. you know, the other aspect of where we can go. Everybody's focused right now on surf park, surf park. We got to surf. Everybody's got to have a board. But, you know, I want to go to this one side. I want to produce the bigger wave um, and be able to do it in that economic fashion. But I also want to be able to um, produce this uh, city pool kind of a wave that the the Babe, Luf, Babe Ruth level um, wave machine wave park. And what I'm going to show though, really with this next level is the pool isn't, you know, we have a wave machine and we push waves onto a reef and they're two separate things. The pool is passive, right? And the wave machine is the active part. And then the energy has to be dispersed. Um, I'm going to show you that it's a living, breathing organism, the entire thing from start to finish. And it's, it's going to be able to change the way that we can put these things together without taking up a huge footprint. And um, on the small end, it, it, it'll operate efficiently. On the big end, you can deal with all of this extra mass and all this energy and, and be able to put it to good use. I wish I could tell you more. Well, Mark, yeah, I mean, good luck. It sounds like an amazing journey that you're on. And we're really excited to hear how it pans out. So, so really do keep in touch with us over here at Waypool Mag. We'd, we'd love to hear how it's going. And and thanks so much for your time. Um, it really was great chatting to you. And you, you brought out some amazing stories. And it's really made me think a lot about my youth and body surfing, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you never forget. Thanks for that, Mark. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I you know, I invite anybody who really knows um the, the wave machine technology to to talk to me, challenge me. I can share things on a confidential basis, even if you're a competitor, you know, because we can, you know, at that level, you know, as with the industrial field, you can share technology if you just with if you agree to, right? And there is a gentleman's agreement. You can agree to share technology and you can advance the the whole field of, of knowledge. And that is really the whole idea behind the, the patent process. The whole idea is to share your ideas with the world. And in exchange, you get a period of protection, right? But it shows everybody explicitly what you're doing and how you're doing it. And so I invite anybody to challenge me to, 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 to just, you know, get into the discussion and then I'll be coming back to you later when, if I, uh, you know, I do a round to raise some money for a more sophisticated test, um, module mod model, which is coming soon. I'll let you know. Okay. 
because I'd love Great. you know so surfers to- everywhere who want to just have a piece you know for a small amount of money you know be involved in something like this. I know everybody wants to be involved in the in the surf park side of it, but you know this is an opportunity that you know that you can be on the wave making side of it too. Okay. So how do people get hold of you, Mark? Well, uh, just go to my website, the waveprison.com. Um, you can send me a text and an email. Give me a call. Um, I'm easy to talk to. I talk to everybody. Brilliant. Um, yeah, you are easy to talk to. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks so much. And that's um, guys out there. It's waveprism.com with a Z. Yeah, that's so, right. With uh, a Z. Thanks. Anyhow. And yeah, thank you yeah, so no much worries. for the, the chance to talk with you. Um, you're my source. Whenever I need to learn, I learn everything really from wavepoolmag.com. That's where I get all of my information. Ah, you're the you best. Know, Thanks, I Mark. love that thing that you did just recently. Um, Lockfeld's um, pool manufacturers, you know, did a great piece on what it takes to do all that concrete work. I loved it. It was beautiful. Um, these oh, are the things I love to see. It. So keep it coming. Um, and I love all the right. interviews. Well, and and, and um, hope, hopefully sometimes we'll, sometime in the future we'll run into each other. Yeah, that'd be great. I appreciate that. Excellent. Well, thanks, Mark. Keep well. Huh? Wish you the best. Wait, For your curiosity and stoke.